Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everyone, Ron Spomer back with another podcast. This time I'm going to read a story about an animal that I haven't hunted all that much and I think most folks who don't live in the Pacific Northwest haven't, and those are black-tailed deer. The black-tail is kind of the king out in that country, and it's a, that thick, wet forest of Oregon and Washington. Pretty interesting animal. And I found the few times that I hunted them that they were a lot like white-tailed deer. And actually, sometimes they would even out-white-tail a white-tail. This story is called Black-tails Like White-tails. Oregon black-tails prove amazingly similar to white-tails and every bit as challenging to hunt by Ron Spomer. And this appeared in the American Hunter magazine of January, February 1995. It had been 45 minutes since the rancher and his dog had walked past the deer. They couldn't have been 30 yards from it, 40 at the most, and it hadn't budged. That left three possibilities. I hadn't missed after all, and the buck was dead in the brush. Or there was enough dip in the land that the buck and his two does had slipped away without our seeing them. Or number three, all deer were hiding like whitetails, less than 80 yards from our tree stand, sticking so tight that not even a cattleman and his faithful stock dog could unnerve them. But these weren't whitetails. They were blacktails. I'd first spotted them right where my guide, Bill, said I would. They'll be right out there in that mountain mahogany, he whispered as he pointed towards shrubs shadowy gray in the moonlight. They might come down a trail from the west, too. See those trails? Down there. Several dark lines through bleached grass and thistles showed clearly beneath the big oak limbs on which I stood. Six trails pass under this tree, but I think we'll see them out in the brush first. And we did. The accuracy of Bill's predictions didn't surprise me. I've seen him in action before. But it certainly amazed me. The man's ability to find elusive black-tailed bucks, big ones, is remarkable. Lots of hunters can locate a general area in which a big buck might be seen if one looks long and hard enough. But Bill can virtually pinpoint where a specific buck will be at a specific time. 
For instance, several days before I hunted with him in November of 1993, Bill took another client to an oak tree on a ridgetop. Sit here and don't twitch, Bill told the man. Just before sunup, two bucks and several does will come within 20 yards. They'll watch you from the brush before stepping out, though. That's why you can't move. One buck is a nice three-pointer, but the other is a big four-point. And a really big four-point. That's the one you want. The hunter dutifully sat and waited. Some 15 minutes before sunrise, he noticed deer faces peering at him from the surrounding brush, the kind of tangled vegetation that has given blacktails their reputation for elusiveness. As directed, he didn't twitch. The faces stared, twisted, and puzzled over this new form. Finally, they stepped forward and began filing past the oak less than 20 yards out. As each doe walked from the brush, the hunter's heart beat faster. His hands sweated, his legs began to quiver. The buck could break cover at any second. But the does might scent him at any second and blow the whole ambush. Would they see him raise his gun and spook before he could fire? Should he start lifting it slowly now or wait until the buck showed, then shoulder it and fire in one swift motion? While he debated and grew ever more anxious, antlers poked through the brush. It was the smaller buck, following the route of the does, most of which had already passed through the opening and disappeared over the ridge. The hunter followed the young buck with his eyes, only not daring to shift another muscle. His gaze darted from the deer back to the brush and the brush back to the deer. The bigger buck was not stepping out and the smaller would soon cross the ridge and be gone should he shoot or wait. Because it was his last morning to hunt, he fired and cleanly killed the medium-sized 3x3, a finer blacktail buck than most hunters take, but small compared to the tall, wide, heavily beamed 4x4 that jumped at the shot and detoured around the clearing. From his perch on a distant hillside, Bill the guide watched that trophy escape. An easy bow shot away from the client who'd lost his resolve a second too soon. Oh well, that's blacktail hunting. Columbia blacktails may be the least understood deer in North America. Confined to the western sections of British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and California north of San Francisco, blacktails are unknown to many American hunters. They haven't the glamour of elk nor the range of whitetails, and they don't dramatically display themselves like mule deer in open western terrain, even though they are considered a mule deer subspecies. Despite this taxonomic relationship, blacktails behave more like whitetails than muleys from a hunter's perspective. While hunting with Bill the past two seasons, I've watched blacktails move in the morning from mountain rimrock habitat, traditional bedding territory for mule deer, and into brushy bottomland, traditional bedding territory for whitetails. However, this trait was not universal. Bill also showed me bucks moving to rimrock bedding sites. I've watched bucks sneak purposefully ahead of hunters just as whitetail bucks do, trotting steadily and quietly through low cover with none of the frantic bouncing so common among mule deer. Once again, however, Bill reports that blacktails will resort to the muley pogo stick bounce. 
Well, last October, bow hunter John Crawford, who sometimes guides for Bill, spotted a Boone and Crockett blacktail bedded behind a log in a brushy creek drainage, but he mistook the log for the deer's body and stuck an arrow in it. The next day, he passed the area again, and there was the buck, more predictable in his habits than a whitetail, lying in the same bed. This time, Crawford didn't miss. Another whitetail behavior I've observed in blacktail bucks is freezing when caught off guard. A big buck I surprised simply stopped in fairly open brush and waited to see what I would do. Since I'd already filled my tag and was hunting with a camera, I made no sudden moves and neither did the deer. He let me take several pictures, but as soon as I moved to sneak closer, he ran. Later, I saw this same buck running through the woods, apparently fleeing some predator two-footed or four. Instead of leaving the area, though, that wily old buck dropped to the forest floor in mid-stride. He held that position until his pursuers, two hunters, passed by. Good luck, fellas. I hope you catch up with him. The fact that I was able to witness such scenes may surprise some experienced blacktail hunters because these deer are not famous for their accessibility. Rainforests and vegetative hellholes are standard blacktail habitats. Cover so thick, so wet, and so miserable that a spear becomes as effective a hunting tool as a rifle. This is why blacktails are so rarely seen, so little known, and so lightly hunted. There are only about 1.5 million of them to begin with and they all hide in the wettest, thickest forests in North America. Well, not exactly. Despite their soggy and cloistered reputation, blacktails also live in pockets of rangeland and oak savanna, park-like settings of grass interspersed with white oaks that spread their big limbs as high and wide and make a flat-shooting western mule deer rifle a handy tool. And even though most American deer hunters romance whitetails and mule deer, outdoorsmen of the Pacific Coast hunt blacktails and hunt them hard. They just don't get the national publicity that whitetail hunters get. Believe me, blacktails are as challenging, thrilling, and rewarding to hunt as whitetails. Those who know this love them. Bill has been hunting these little Northwest deer since he was a kid. His father used to sit along escape routes and send Bill and his brothers into the thickets to flush out the blacktails. Dad was a good hunter for that kind of cover and he took some nice bucks, but nothing like we're getting now, Bill told me. He never glassed and stalked, so he couldn't be very selective about what he took. When a buck flashed by, you made up your mind quick. Now we pick and choose. Bill, who has taken several BNC bucks of his own, does his picking and choosing long before his clients arrive to hunt. Throughout summer and early fall, he is afield at dawn and dusk in Oregon or California, glassing and taking notes. He's learned that blacktails like whitetails are creatures of habit. When he finds one leaving a rancher's orchard at dawn in September, he usually finds it leaving that same orchard at dawn in late October. If he spots one from a thicket while he's horseback riding in August, he'll probably jump it from that same thicket during the hunting season. And if he spots bucks bedded on a Rocky Mountain peak in September, they'll be there in November. Thanks to such preseason scouting, Bill can quickly and efficiently guide hunters to good bucks with minimum time wasted in unproductive territory. Of 14 hunters he guided in 1992, three took Boone and Crockett trophies and several others missed shots at trophy heads. 
Everyone got a deer except two fellows who passed up several good opportunities while holding out for bigger bucks. That isn't to say that shooting one of these Southwest Oregon deer is a cinch, even when your guide puts you right on top of one. I discovered this in 1993. I was afield with Randy Brooks, inventor of the Barnes X-Bullet. He was one of two hunters who didn't tag a buck during that 1992 hunt. I was one who did. So it was Randy's turn, and I didn't object at all, to Bill's plan to place both of us in the same area. There are two good bucks running with several does in that pasture, Danielson explained. Now, both are nice, but one's a bit better than the other. Ron, if you don't mind, I'd like Randy to take the big four-point, and then, if you get the chance, you could shoot or pass up the smaller one. If you could go to another area and hunt a different buck, whatever you want to do. Well, I enjoyed Randy's humor as well as his insights on rifles, bullets, and ballistics, and he's also a good subject for my camera, as long as he's willing to put up with me, so I'd be happy to hunt with him. So at 5 a.m. we hiked under the silvery light of a full moon toward our stands. Bill took me to the second tree under which the deer were scheduled to appear, while his chief assistant, Bob, led Randy to the first tree under which the two bucks were first expected. We began glassing at first light, a breeze wafting in from the east, then west, then east again, just cool enough to make gloves necessary. As sunrise neared, I clearly saw the shoulder-high brush bill had pointed out in the dark. Clumps of it were scattered across 300 yards of pasture, forming dense pockets in places. Three large oaks guarded the far side of the field. Randy and Bob were somewhere beyond that, deeper in the oak woods beyond a low hill. According to Bill's scouting, the deer would pass Randy before reaching our vantage point. The world began awakening to the sounds of pheasants crowing, jays talking, and towhees whining back and forth. Sparrows and Audubon's warblers flitted in the brush below, occasionally fluttering into the dry oak leaves overhead and scaring the calm out of me. No deer. A half hour after sunrise, with the sun warming my back, Bill decided to drop from the tree and circle east and south just in case the deer were following a new route. Anything he bumped was supposed to run back past me, and I was to keep a sharp eye on that brushy pasture because it was still our best bet. Once again, nothing showed until Bill returned and asked what I had seen. Right after I said, nothing, a doe appeared from amid the shrubbery. Doe, I pointed. Bill quickly lifted himself into the oak and climbed as high as he could. Just as he settled into position and focused his 10 by 40 Swarovski binocular, a buck stepped to the doe's side. Buck, we whispered in unison. I saw four points on one side, possibly four on the other, good spread and above average height, but the tines were not very long. Still, he was knocking on Boone and Crockett's door. This is the one you want me to shoot? I asked, not quite believing I was so polite. If I hadn't taken such a beautiful blacktail buck the previous season, I'd have been clicking off that safety, for the buck at which I was looking was impressive. Yeah, I think so, yes. Go ahead, you can shoot this one if you want. Well, the range was about 250 yards, just where I'd sighted my 30-06 Winchester featherweight to throw the 125-grain Barnes X bullet Randy made sure I was using. Just prior to the hunt, I'd loaded the all-copper slugs into a favorite handload and it put three shots, one atop the other inside of three-quarters of an inch. 
At 100 yards, the sleek slug would strike two inches high. At 300 yards, it would land just four inches low. All I had to do was hold dead on and squeeze. But first, I had to move to clear a branch. I crouched low on the big oak limbs to clear the obstruction. Then I leaned against a fat branch. It wasn't the steadiest rest, but it felt like it would do. Well, it didn't. I fired and missed clean. The buck jumped, turned, and stopped. Before I could line up a solid shot, he trotted forward. Now, with two does, it stopped again, partially obscured by brush. He appeared to be limping slightly. I think you hit him. I don't think so. Yeah, he isn't acting right. Each time I lined the sights up for another shot, he trotted away or stopped behind branches. Suddenly, he was 300 yards out and threatening to escape. But then... Just as suddenly, he and the doe swapped direction and began trotting directly toward us. They're going to pass right under the tree, Bill hissed. Had they continued trotting, they would have. But instead, they entered the brush and disappeared. Five minutes later, they still hadn't come out. And then that rancher showed up, walking the fence line and checking the wires. When he strolled right past the point at which the deer had disappeared, we were puzzled. He must be hit. Let's give him more time to bleed out, Bill suggested. Nearly an hour had passed since my initial shot. Bill dropped from the elk and began circling upwind of the supposed position of the deer. I climbed to the highest safe perch in that oak and loaded my rifle, fearing nothing would flush, doubting that I'd hit that buck yet, hoping Bill would bend and lift an antlered head. He walked within 20 yards of where I'd last seen that deer. Nothing moved. Then he searched for a blood trail. Finding none, he came back and began looping through the brushes as if flushing a rabbit. Nothing moved. I was about to climb down when a doe slipped from the brush a hundred yards away. Shortly, a second appeared, two hundred yards out. I was again amazed by the whitetail behavior of those blacktails. They had indeed dropped and hidden, letting two men and a dog pass within pebble-tossing range. Bill must have nearly stepped on him. But the buck still hadn't shown. Perhaps he was dead. And then he came, ghosting from the gray brush, his head low, slipping out of the far edge of cover, moving quickly into the oak grove where he popped in and out of view like a target at a carnival. I tried following him in the scope. Frustrated, I looked ahead and found an opening. He hit it, but passed behind a few branches before I could fire. Within seconds, he would drop behind the roll of land and be gone. As he entered that last opening, framed by bronze oak leaves, I picked him up at 4x and fired. Bill and I reached him at the same time. High fives, he was a find. Antlers wide, heavy, and dark. Randy and Bob came along later while we were making pictures. Randy had seen the same buck earlier, but could not get a clear shot. The apparent limp we'd seen after my first shot was due to two deformed hooves. Bill apologized for the second buck failing to appear, as if it were his fault. Well, we then set out to find Randy a buck along some rim rock. Our first attempt failed. In the morning, Randy tried another oak tree stand that yielded only does. Still confident of that rim rock, Bill led Randy back to it the third day. After a brisk two-mile hike in, they eased over the edge, sat, and soon spotted three bucks. The biggest fed out of sight into heavy brush before Randy could fully assess his antlers. 
He didn't make that mistake with the second buck, a single 175 grain X bullet from his custom 338 Winchester Magnum finished the job. The perfect three points scored 120 B and C points, just 10 points shy of the hallowed book. My buck grossed 126, but netted considerably less due to poor symmetry. Randy and I both felt fortunate. Mature blacktail bucks are arguably the toughest North American deer to find. Thanks to Bill's advanced scouting and our whitetail hunting tactics, we'd beaten the odds. Wow, I remember that one. I was with Randy for the second time. I'd met him the year before at the same camp and he didn't get his buck and he said gosh let's go back and and do it again next year and i'll provide the bullets <laughs> so that was right when he was starting the um, barnes bullets yeah pretty close he uh, started initially with his creation which was the x bullet in 1988 if i remember the date right he took one up that he had made uh, to test it on a big brown bear in Alaska, figured if the bullet would work for that, it would work for anything. And he had great success, so that's when they started making it. He and his wife, Connie, and their two girls built these bullets in the basement of their house and hand-packaged them. And it, I mean, the whole thing was a family operation. I mean, it's just a really a, a wonderful all-American success story where you just get out there and make it happen. So did he was he producing any other bullets before the copper bullet? Well, what what happened was Randy bought out Barnes Bullets, which was started by a man named Barnes who was in Colorado, and that gentleman built some old-fashioned bonded bullets. As old-fashioned meaning that they weren't modernized as far as sleek and boat tails and all that. It was just a superior bonded bullet for a lot of weight retention for big game. I mean, he was famous for that. And they still make it, the originals, Barnes originals. But Randy wanted something new, something that would catch the lights and, and stand out. And that's where he came up with that all-copper hollow-nosed X-bullet. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, they've they're now one of the major players out there. And I think they've really done a wonderful job with that of course they sold the company and uh it was owned by remington and now remington got broken up again and i think i believe that sierra bullets bought it i i think so but i'm i yeah not positive i could I google it <laughs> yeah well we'll do that later but yeah yeah sierra bullets picked it up that's great news because those folks have been in business for ages and ages making some wonderful traditional bullets and now they'll pick this line up and i expect to see great things come out of that that's fun cool so yeah but that was blacktail hunting and it's really something different for most folks because it's so isolated to the western fringe states oregon a little bit of northern california washington state up into british columbia and they used to think that the black tail was a subspecies of the mule deer but some mitochondrial dna studies that genetic stuff has shown that the um the line actually came from white tails so what that mitochondrial dna shows is that a white tail buck i believe bred a blacktail doe maybe it's the other way around but one or the other to make the mule deer oh the mule <laughs> yeah i mean to me it doesn't make sense when you look at a mule deer it's bigger than both of the other ones uh, but they claim that according to these genetics mule deer as a species are probably only about ten thousand years old whereas whitetails have been found in fossils and whatnot two million years ago 
So why why is the blacktail so sneaky? I mean, why you know they? Good question. I found that they're sneakier than whitetails. I've hunted whitetails since I was sixteen, but these blacktails, I was just dumbfounded by how sneaky they were. They will absolutely lie flat, not move, and let you about step on them. Well, whitetails are sort of famous for that, but I haven't seen whitetails do it quite to this degree. So why do you think that is in that in that environment? Well, here's my theory. They're in a really thick rainforest cover, generally. It's real heavy, real dense. How do you stay away from predators? In cover like that, you can't see them coming. If a cougar sneaks up on you, you have a chance he's going to be on you before you detect he's there. So if suddenly your ear hears a soft little padding of a cougar, if you jump up and run, all you've done is told him, here I am, and he's going to catch you. And there's you. no place to run. And there's no place to hide. Up. Well, I mean, there's a place to hide if you keep hiding. So I think they get in a heavy cover and they just lie there until something practically steps on them. If they jump too soon and give it away, they might be caught. Whereas if they lie, lie flat and don't jump up, that cougar might walk right past them. That's my theory. <laughs> so it, it's your theory. What, is, what do the scientists say? I haven't asked any of them. No, I absolutely have not read anything on it, but... To me, that makes perfect sense. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I'll Google it again. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. See what you can come up with. At, at any rate, it really makes for a challenging hunt. So what happens out there is that you have to be really patient and try to do some scouting and find some animals and, and figure out what they're doing. But, boy, they move so slowly and generally just before dark. I can remember on one of these hunts, the guide Bill said, there's a such and such deer comes out of such and such a place at such and such a time. And by golly, almost every time he said that, that's what happened. So you've really got to hold still, be patient, let them come out. Um, unless the rut. I have not had the pleasure of hunting them in the rut, but I imagine they let their guard down a little bit then because those bucks have got to get out and search for the does. How, how difficult it is to get a tag for a blacktail? Well, it was easy back then. You just bought one. And I imagine it's still the same because they're so hard to hunt. I don't think that they. I get mean, you don't hear a lot about blacktail hunting. I mean, no, there's sure not don't. there's not a show on TV that's go hunting blacktails. Yeah, <laughs> Winchester's world of blacktails. Nope. <laughs> yeah. So, but hey, if you want to challenge, if you want to hunt all the North American deer, you really owe it to yourself to try blacktails. There's a lot of public land out there in blacktail country, but make sure you bring your raincoat. I would put a Sims jacket on over probably some Sims Gore-Tex waders for some of that stuff. But if you go in the early season, it can be dry. I always had it pretty dry when I hunted for blacktail by going early. So don't assume you're going to drown, but there's a good chance of it. But get out there, find out where the public land is available. Look for some clear cuts because in those big, heavy old growth forests, those deer have to find second growth. So they're looking for where a storm has gone through and blown a bunch of trees down and you get the raspberry vines and blackberries and all the things growing that they can eat. Or the clear cuts. These days it's logging that makes for those openings. But if you can find the edge between an old growth and the, the young stuff, I think that's where they're coming out to feed and you're going to find them doing that. So that's definitely one option. And another is to get on private land where they've got some, maybe some farm fields that they're hitting, just like whitetails. They'll come out of the thick stuff and hit into those. Then you can probably see them. But do be patient 
and wait them out because I've seen them stick their nose out of heavy cover and look and listen and sniff for a good 15 minutes without twitching. I, I don't think this is a hunt that I want to go on. I don't think I have the patience. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have not just patience, but faith. That's the hard part that makes for the patience. If you know those deer and you know one's going to be there, it makes it easier to be patient. But if you're just out looking for a new area and while you're being patient, your brain is saying, there's nothing here, go home. <laughs> yeah, that I would I would reach that point pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, that makes it kind of miserable. But hey, give it a try. It's a it's certainly something different and something special. And hats off to the folks who hunt them regularly and successfully because that is one of the most difficult hunts in North America. Blacktails of the Pacific Northwest. Give it a try. Hey, thanks for joining us on this Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. And of course, we invite you to check us out on the YouTube channel and ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Ron Spomer Outdoors. And now we are uh, part of Patreon community. The Patreon app enables you to join Ron Spomer Outdoors community as one of our supporters, and your support enables us to make more videos and podcasts and all the stuff we do. And you also get to weigh in and tell us what you'd like to see covered and we have some special meetings now and then for our Patreon members. It's a lot of fun. You might want to check it out. Just uh, go to the App Store and look at Patreon, and then go to Ron Spomer Outdoors and join us. In the meantime, on honest and shoot straight. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.